As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today is a man to steal a word from or a phrase from Daryl Grove who has all the answers to all the questions. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay Tay. A pleasure to be here once again. I can't promise I have all the correct answers, but I have answers to questions all the same. I can make that same promise, and that means (laughs) together we'll hopefully get them right. We'll find out. What a premise to set up a Q&A show. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Before we get started, Tay-Tay, yes, I sir. do have something to say. I mean, this might not be the platform to do it, but it's an issue that affects us all. There's something, as we know, something very big happened this Tuesday. The effects are still reverberating. Oh, boy. It's something we've all seen play out, you know, very monumental, very emotional. It's been a controversial moment for all of us, and it's affected me very personally. I'm talking, of course, about AFC Wimbledon's first game at Plough Lane, which happened on Tuesday, and it finished 2-2, Taylor. It was with Doncaster Rovers. Um, the world was, was kind of waiting with bated breath. Can you tell us how it went? Well, yeah, of course. This is, As I say, it affected us all. It's the, it's the big news <laughs> of the week. Um, it was 2-1 to Wimbledon mm-hmm. going into the 90th minute. Then in the 91st minute, Doncaster's James Coppinger scores an equalizer Uh now i campaign to have all goals to stop being counted after 90 minutes i'm I'm (laughs) mounted a legal challenge they found an extra goal there was an extra goal dump Uh after the 90 minute mark taylor so um, i filed a lawsuit i've got a good feeling it's going to be successful we will get justice on this issue i mean i i like that you've taken us this route even though uh i i would be happy if wimbledon were able to win that lawsuit but maybe not the other lawsuit you're referring to um but i'm glad i'm glad that at the very least you got your, your your first game was it exciting like were you genuinely pretty pumped even if you couldn't be there in person I was very pumped. Yeah, for context, this is AFC Wimbledon's first uh, home game, effectively, in 29 years. Plough Lane in SW19, not far away from where the tennis is held. Uh, Wimbledon had a ground there since 1912, moved away in 1991 when stadiums were required to become all-seater, and that, that stadium allegedly couldn't um, be converted. Uh, finally, finally, the club making its way back in 2020 uh, at a time when there were no fans there. And, uh, yeah, that, that was a bit of a shame, but really, really... 
a very emotional day for me and my family. Um, and it was a good game, albeit, Taylor, this gave me the reminder that how much we, however many gripes we may have mm-hmm. about the coverage in the US and Peacock and things being put, uh, presented in certain ways to us, at least most of us don't have to deal with iFollow. <laughs> iFollow is the EFL's um, sort of online streaming platform. It is garbage. It doesn't even have it's – it's only like an iOS or Android app, so you can't even put it on like a TV app or your Apple TV. It cuts out every few minutes. It's quite expensive. Count ourselves lucky that we have ESPN to watch our championship, basically. Whew. I, I count myself lucky that I didn't interject earlier because I was going to say, like, it must have been really exciting to have all the fans there to support the team. And I and I do feel like I have this thing lately of, like, COVID fatigue where I, like, going outside, I'll, I obviously will wear my mask and don't forget about it there. But there are just moments where I'm like, oh, why, why aren't there fans in the stands? Oh, right, 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 right. So, yeah, I was about to be like, it must have been really exciting. And then it occurs to me. Yeah, empty stadium, probably not quite as thrilling as it would have been to have a packed house. But regardless, I'm glad that you get the uh, the anxiety of seeing your team struggle to win at home uh, back in your life once again. <laughs> yeah, it never ends. Uh, but there obviously will be a time when there are full fans mm-hmm. back in the stadium, and I will make sure I fly back. And I was gonna, uh, and I will be there. I was, for the record, planning to fly back for this game. I had been planning it for several years to be there for the first game, oh, which man. was my birthday as well. It would have wow. been quite a nice treat, but no, alas. Well, Thank you, COVID. Here is pretty much the exact same thing, I think. You're here to talk to answer some listener questions. I know that must bring you the exact same level of joy as traveling home to see your team play at home for the first time in forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I've uh, I've dealt with the lawsuit. I've got that out of the way. So let's get let's get started with some questions. Shall <laughs> All we? right. Up first is one from Kenneth Seiden. Uh And again, I wanted to say to people who've been sending questions for the past couple months, uh, we do want to try to catch up. Ryan and I are going to be doing shows uh, when I go on paternity leave. I think Ryan will maybe have to. <laughs> Ryan, I'm breaking this news to you right now. We'll we'll find some folks to answer listener questions with him, and hopefully, we'll keep that going because we've got. A considerable backlog to get to, and we're going to start yeah. getting to it right now. Uh, I'm not going to give you time to respond to that charge, Ryan. I'm just going to keep moving. Kenneth Seiden <laughs> with a new state-of-the-art training center slash academy opening, stadium upgrades coming, and European football on the horizon slash around. Can Leicester turn the Premier League into a big seven? Interesting question. I think it's quite yes. a nuanced question, isn't it, Taylor? It because, is. Well, let's start off by saying... Big six is only really a colloquial term. It doesn't yep. actually mean anything. Mm-mm. And it wasn't that long ago, I suppose, mid-2000s when it was a big four. Mm-hmm. And Manchester City and Tottenham were kind of added to that mix, weren't yep. they? And if, if you'd have done a big four or a big whatever at the start of the Premier League, Aston Villa and Norwich would have been in it. So yeah. this is something that does move around over time. So using that logic, yes, it's quite possible if Leicester push on and they have this new academy they, uh, and training centre, uh, they're doing these upgrades. If they hang on to Brendan Rodgers, we've seen that even if they sell their biggest players, mm-hmm. they can stay competitive and get new players in. So, you know, it's perfectly possible they could become part of the big machine there. My problem with it is twofold, though, Taylor. Firstly... They're not big seven necessarily because they haven't consistently finished in the top seven. They're fifth now at the moment as we speak, but their last few finishes were ninth, ninth, and twelfth. All right, they were first the season before that, but the season before that, what were they? Seventeenth? They barely hang on. Well, they were they were fifth last season, right? They right, 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 right. But I mean, they they, they've had they've had uh, they haven't had that many seventh play finishes. They've had two in the last four five years. Yeah. 
So um, I, I think that's not consistent enough to be considered Big Seven. If they do the next five years, always finishing in the Big Seven, sure, I can buy that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would propose is it depends how you define Big Six. Is it by position? I suppose it is to a certain extent, but also it's a financial metric, isn't it? And if you look at Leicester from that perspective, mm. I think my cursory research tells me they are 19th on the Forbes rich list. They are 22nd on Deloitte's list of the richest soccer teams, uh, of which all the big six and Everton and West Ham are above them. And you could argue that they're a small market team. The rest of the big six are either in London or Manchester or you know Liverpool, which is basically mm-hmm. Manchester region. Not Leicester don't at the, currently have a huge international following outside of uh, you know Thailand and the East. So you could argue that they're not quite there on those kind of metrics as well. Yeah. And if if Leicester have a chance of being in the big seven, surely Wolves do mm-hmm. as well. I'd put them in the same basket. How do you feel? I've talked for a long time about this now. No, you're good. I, th- I think I, I mostly agree with you because I think it's certainly possible, but, but I take your point that it feels like they would be a different type of uh, a big quote unquote team or like in the big seven, because to your point, a lot of those teams are in larger cities and have an insane amount of money. Leicester have plenty of money, as you said, with with their ranking, but it's not that next level where they can go out and comfortably drop 70, 80, 100 million pounds every single time. They are selling players every single season to sort of finance operations. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that they are a very, I think, sustainably run club. I think Mm -hmm. they're very well structured. And I think that structure and sort of consistent competence, which a lot of teams don't have, allows them to keep performing as they have been. So it's a strange thing to say, but they are like, yes, I think they're in that conversation but simultaneously in a different way because it's not – they're just going to go out and buy a bunch of people. They're a little bit more, I think, of the big six. In my mind, they're like closer to Tottenham where Tottenham for years were like in that conversation but not not quite as you kind of alluded to earlier. Then they get the stadium, they get some bigger names, and it starts to switch a little bit. But I feel like that's a recent thing that took a very long time to develop, and I kind of feel like that's where Leicester are as well. They've kind of started that the groundwork, which is a strange thing to say about a team that won the Premier League, but I feel like it's given them this foundation that they're slowly building on, and I think maybe, yeah, five, ten years down the road, they may be more so consistently in that conversation than they are right now. Yeah, and I think they just have to keep 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 on trucking basically yeah. to stay in that conversation because, as we say, they're not a heritage club, uh, whatever that means. They're not an Arab Emirate marketing project, right. uh, you know. So, uh, and another way of looking at this, Taylor, is if you look at the recent news about the breakaway European Super League, uh, they were not included in that conversation. Whereas teams like West Ham and I think even Southampton right. were, were those legacy Premier League teams, you know, who, who've been up there. So they need to get themselves more into that kind of conversation. And I think you do that just with time. You don't do that with a, a you know a breakout first place finish and a, and a few mid-table finishes, essentially. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you have to have the kind of, I mean, this doesn't really go for West Ham, but like the sustained history of success. West mm. Ham have the stadium combined with the London location, combined with, with the history, don't get me wrong. But yeah, I, I think Leicester like, don't have some of those more notable eye-catching things that you would want if you're building a European Super League. And I think part of that is also, again, the the way they spend their money, uh, which is very, very wisely. <laughs> and it's almost like that's a negative like in their in their favor, that they're not replacing when they sell Conte, Mares, Drinkwater, Maguire, Chilwell. They're replacing them, but you're not replacing Ben Chilwell with another 40 or 50 million pound player. You're replacing mm. him with uh, uh, Castagni from Atalanta. Like, 
like a a very good player, but not one that's going to sell a bunch of jerseys and move a lot of merchandise. And again, it's it's a sustainable model that gives them success and stability. Brendan Rodgers took that job because there was a kind of long-term outlook that he could be there for a very long period of time as opposed to kind of chopping and changing the way a lot of clubs do these days. So they have this model in place. It's just not that sort of like quote-unquote legacy model, as you uh, mentioned earlier. So let me flip Kenneth's question onto you, Tate, with a slightly different angle. Let's say over the next five or ten years, which of these clubs do you think has the best chance of becoming the Big Seven seventh team? Mm -hmm. Leicester City, (laughs) Wolverhampton Wanderers, or Everton? That is a a really good question because... Like, Everton would be the obvious answer right now because of Ancelotti, because of James and the way they've been playing. But I'm going to just say that that's very recent. And New stadium, too. New stadium coming. New stadium, too. That's a good point. Ah, that's tough. But I just feel like this time last season, we were like, I don't know what this team's going to do. So it's still a little bit too soon, though. I feel like they've got the best chance. I think my answer is probably it's Leicester or Wolves. I'm going to say Leicester, just because of their consistent, like proven method of bringing in young players via that scouting network. Wolves mm-hmm. are certainly doing that as well, but are obviously benefiting from a very good relationship with George Mendes or the relationship he has with their ownership more specifically. And maybe that dries up, maybe that changes, you never know. But I do feel like, like that sort of relationship is very important to Wolves, and maybe Leicester don't have as much of a, we need this sort of thing, we need this specific relationship, otherwise we could be in some trouble. Instead, it's like they've lost their head of recruitment a couple different times, brought in somebody else. They haven't really skipped a step, you know? So mm. I would say they're all very good candidates, but if you really pressed me, I'd say Leicester. Leicester Fiesta, baby. TSS you, has spoken. Do you have an answer for that one, or do you just want to move on without having to commit? <laughs> I'd like to move on without committing, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, for the sake of it, I'll agree with you and say Leicester. All right, all right. Well, then I, since you didn't get to talk very much on that last one, I'll let you talk on this one to start. Robert Cordova, why do you think the 1966 England team were never given knighthood for winning the World Cup? An outrage, I say. An outrage indeed. So it is a curious thing about knighthoods because there's no hard and fast rules as to who gets them. So of the um, the members of the 1966 World Cup team, uh, I think most of them got OBEs. Or, sorry, MBEs, yeah. right? Or mm-hmm. OBEs. Bobby Moore and Alan Ball, for example, they passed away uh, and they had an OBE. So you've got players, Gordon Banks, George Cohen, Ray Wilson, Martin Peters, Jack Cholton, uh, Nobby Stars, and Roger Hunt. Uh, Nobby Stars also passing away recently, of course, uh, just with the OBE. And these are, uh, these are players who, there have been campaigns, like the Mirror newspaper did a Night the Lions appeal a few years ago about yep. who, sh- who should get them. And of that team, Bobby Charlton, Sir Jeff, Hur- Sir Jeff Hurst, I say it there in the title, Bobby Hart, Jeff Hurst, and Alf Ramsey, the manager, were the only ones who got knighthood. So it does seem slightly inconsistent that the other players wouldn't get them. Gordon Banks, for example, I'm kind of surprised he never got one, and, and Jack Charlton and, and Nobby Stiles too. And it's curious when you look at... Um, other sports people who do get them. Andy Murray, for example, the tennis player, he's been knighted and he's, his career is technically still going. I think maybe maybe he's wrapping it up He's now. Sir Andy Murray? He's Sir Andy Murray for, for, the, for winning Wimbledon. I did not know that. So he gets a, he gets a knighthood during his career. My faux these... outrage from earlier is now <laughs> slightly more genuine <laughs> outrage. And it's, it's a very weird system. I say there's no hard and fast rules. Like there are lots of players who have the MBE, which is the member of the Order of the British Empire. Yeah. And there's the OBE, which is the Order of the British Empire. So it kind of goes OBE, MBE, knighthood, if that's my understanding of the rankings. David Beckham has an OBE. Uh, for MBEs, Marcus Rashford has one. Robbie Earl has one for services to football. 
Um, uh, Peter Schmeichel mm. even has one. He's not even British, but he has an honorary one. Uh, so it, it's very strange. And then there are certain um, uh, managers who've got them as well. Sir yeah. Alex Ferguson got one, for example. Kenny Dalgleish has one. And Sir Bobby Robson. Sir Bobby, of course, has one as well. So to answer, to answer the question, I do not know why yeah. the entire team does not have one because surely they deserve it because this team, they live in infamy in Britain and English culture because they're the only team to have done it. Mm-hmm. If by some crazy miracle, the England team would have won this this past World Cup in 2018, which they weren't terribly far away from doing, although in some respects they were very far away from doing it, it would have been Sir Harry Kane instantly. There would have been knighthoods across the board. I'm quite certain of that. So why this group of players never really got their dues is a little bit mystifying for me. Uh, I, I am equally confused because I assume it would be a larger thing. And to some extent, what I was able to find, what I could read, it seems like it's a thing that gets trotted out every every couple of years as... Like, when somebody gets knighted that somebody feels shouldn't have been, it's usually written as, like, these guys still haven't been knighted, but that person is. It becomes a sort of easy narrative, I think, to reiterate. But going deeper, all I can figure is that I believe Alf Ramsey, Alf Ramsey, excuse me, the manager of that 66 team, was knighted. Sir Alex Ferguson, you mentioned. Kenny Douglas, you mentioned. My, My guess, if I had to, would be that the way it's looked at is that it's the manager. Who who did the work or organized the team or you know made the lads champions? Uh, I'm I'm assuming that's what it says on the knighthood. Uh, and so maybe it's the <laughs> coach. And then as time goes on, as the players Bobby Charlton wins the, uh, the European Championships or uh, like things like that, not the Euros, yeah. but you know what I mean. Like may, maybe it's that that then it gets filled in a little bit. But it does still feel like it's an easy. It's almost like a layup to just like yeah, just knight the whole team. It makes everybody care about the the king and queen again. So let's make it happen. But- it's odd, though, because, yeah, Bobby Charlton deserves it, obviously, because a, a very legendary player domestically and for the England team. But Jeff Hurst, Jeff Hurst, who yeah. obviously scored the hat-trick in the, in the final, sure, give him the knighthood, mm-hmm. but Bobby Moore didn't get one, the captain of that team. Yeah. Is that not a little inconsistent? It's very Jeff strange. Hurst, and remember, Jeff Hurst wasn't actually a first-team starter. He came in, I think it was because uh, uh, Greavesy was, was out for that game. So uh, it's, it, it's very odd. It's a very odd system. It's- I'm not going to pretend to understand how anything in the United Kingdom and England England works so there we, I'm sorry that's an underwhelming answer to the question no you mentioned that if England had won in 2018 that it'd be Sir Harry Kane the yeah. the the, uh, the lack of uh, Bobby Moore being knighted to me is it's as though like if like Jesse Lingard scored the winner in the World Cup final and he was knighted along with Gareth Southgate and Harry Kane was not that's kind of how I feel about it a little bit not trying to diminish what Jeff Shreves did just that yeah it does feel like well wouldn't you give it to the captain and shouldn't he be a sir that doesn't seem fair can you imagine, though, if that 2018 well, uh, England team did get knighted and we had Sir Harry Maguire doing what he's doing right now, being a knight of the realm? I mean, I drink that in. I feel like historically for a period of time, that's sort of the behavior in keeping with knights of going somewhere <laughs> in the Mediterranean and causing problems. That feels, that feels apt. That feels like what he should be doing as a, as a knight of the realm. So yeah, it's just, why not? Just knight banter. Knight <laughs> yeah. banter. That's all it's, it is. Exactly. Exactly. You got to show up in a, in a Mediterranean town and cause problems. That, that makes sense <laughs> to me. Uh, I'm going to quickly transition us away from moving into medieval politics and instead talk about today's sponsor, Policy genius who would like to remind you that shopping for life insurance can seem like a daunting task and in a time of everything seeming like a daunting task who needs one more but if you've got loved ones that depend on you it's really important and that's why policy genius makes it easy they combine a cutting-edge life insurance marketplace with help from licensed experts excuse me to save you time and money 
Listen up, y'all. I've got the skinny on Policy Genius right here. PolicyGenius.com is where you need to head. Mm-hmm. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need, <laughs> comparing quotes from top insurers to find that best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. Who wants to handle red tape themselves? Not me, says I. And the best part is they do the work for you, not the insurance company. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they take care of everything. Here is here is my my vow, my pledge. I still do not have life insurance, baby on the way. I probably need to deal with that. So between mm. now and when she arrives, I am going to get life insurance and I'm going to use policygenius.com. If you want to do the same, as Ryan said, you could save 50% or more by comparing quotes. Uh, so go to policygenius.com. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Thank you very much to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Thank you very much indeed. Let's move back to the questions, Tay-Tay. Ben Sumstrong is clumming at you like Cleopatra right here. What happened to Joshua Mm -hmm. Piandath? Once a top US prospect, last season he got his Ajax debut. Now he's unsigned with no contract in sight. What's going on there, Taylor? All right. So I think it's interesting. I have never heard his name said out loud. I have always gone with Pinadath, but either way. I realize I I butchered it as soon as I said it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Pinadath sounds much more likely. I apologize. All right. Let's stick with that then. Uh, For folks who are less familiar, uh, because I kind of forgot about him as well. Uh, Former Real Madrid Academy player who left to join the Ajax Academy when he was 13. He'd been doing well, progressing uh, to their U19 squad, getting occasional minutes for young Ajax. I think he even appeared in a friendly with the senior team. And so it felt like, oh, he's really progressing. He's an extra Gino Dest. We've seen this before. We're going to see it again. That Mm. he is now without a contract seems sort of confusing. But I I think I have an explanation for you, Ryan. Uh, It seems as though, uh, and the... It seems as though basically like that progression is actually not a good thing, even as good as it sounds, because uh, this was from a Reddit explainer. I should give credit where credit's due, so credit to Reddit. Uh, For players his age, Ajax are prioritizing uh, U19 UEFA Youth League games over young Ajax games. Whenever basically that U19 squad was playing a UEFA Youth League game, uh, then we had Pinadath going and playing for Young Ajax. When Young Ajax was playing and you and like the U19s just had a normal game, then he would go back to the U19s. And basically, he was always being moved to the not as good team when the good team was playing. And that then meant that he was kind of bouncing from position to position, so wasn't really developing as a like definitive right back or a definitive central midfielder. He was good on the ball. He remains good on the ball. He's a good dribbler, but by all accounts, like slightly limited. And I'm assuming part of that is because he hasn't been allowed to really specialize in one area. Uh, and so with him just kind of filling in some of those minutes were like 10 and 15 minute cameos. It wasn't quite the sustained development that I think he was hoping for. So as his contract is expiring, you could read it one way, you could read it the other. I'm going to say it's probably both, which is that Ajax maybe didn't seem as inclined to renew that contract. He wanted to look elsewhere for other opportunities where maybe he gets more consistent minutes and is allowed to grow in one specific spot. So they part ways. And I think at the time there was an expectation that it was all going to be fine. A bunch of big clubs were interested. That no one has come in, I think, shows that he is maybe not quite a top prospect, maybe hasn't developed the all-round abilities you need, but is still obviously very, very young. So we will see what happens. Maybe it's a move back to the United States. Maybe it's a move to another like slightly more mid-table uh, Eredivisie team where he can play in that academy. But that is my understanding of what has happened there. I hope I have made it make sense to, uh, to folks like yourself, Ryan, who maybe aren't as familiar with Joshua Pinadath, but now possibly are. 
I was not terribly familiar with this story. Thank you for filling me in yes, there, sir. Taylor. It's, it does seem very curious for a player that young to you know go and spend time at Real Madrid and yeah. Ajax and to be such a hot prospect mm-hmm. and then suddenly to kind of fall off the face. It almost feel like feels a bit Freddie Adu esque in terms of the the the, uh, the, the, the pattern there. What what yeah. I suspect is there's a lot of mitigating factors that could result in this current scenario, and the one that struck me the most as being one of the most likely would be some kind of injury or a, or a something something the medical team has seen that they think is mm. maybe unsustainable or not doesn't pertain to a long-term contract is that fair you you mean so like in addition to the things i was saying like maybe he's got some long-term problem that they think is not yeah like um i mean i hadn't seen anything about that it's i mean you never know <laughs> like uh yeah but i i think from what I heard, it's basically just that when he would play, I mean, he, he seems to lack a, a bit of pace, and maybe that is like part of that. Maybe it is a, a defect or something like that. But I think he doesn't necessarily have like that top, top speed you need to play at the elite level, or at yeah. least that's what the Ajax folks have uh, seemed to say. One other thing I'll say about um, uh, Pindadas here, Taylor, is, is uh, his, he's got U.S. and Indian citizenry. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about how few players of Indian citizenry and Indian descent yep. there are in top level soccer, I could only actually think of one. It was Michael Chopra. That's, who, yeah. Well, you know, he played for England, but had Indian parentage. So it, it is curious how few people of Indian descent do make it into the top level. Was Michael Chopra ever with Wolves? Uh, he was at Leeds for a long time. Where did it? And sort of, he was a Sunderland Northern kind of journeyman. I'm not sure right. about Wolves. That's fine. I, there, there's somebody who used to be connected to Wolves who I, I believe had uh, has Indian lineage, Indian heritage as well. But that's the only other one I can think of, and I can't mm. even remember his name. So there you go. It is a it's a limited pool. I would not be surprised if India tried to call him up, no matter what happens. Uh, but yeah. thus far, has been playing for the U.S. youth system. So we shall see what happens with him. We shall see what happens with the next question if that works for you mr bailey shall i read it out taylor <laughs> sure it's a it's a bit <laughs> harsh it's a bit of a harsh question all right here we go <laughs> chris decker asks who is the player you absolutely appreciate on the pitch but hate to watch play for example chris says i'm a saints fan who thoroughly appreciates oriel romelu's unwavering hustle his ball winning skills and the ability to just disrupt opposition possession anywhere on the field however while he may be a handsome man He's an ugly footballer. Wow. Uh, Romeo runs with a troll-like lack of grace. He may be incapable of completing a forward pass farther than six wow. feet. And I believe he forgets to detach the sprint parachute before walking onto the pitch. Way harsh, Ty. I love having him on my club, but dislike watching him on my screen. What do you think, Taylor? Are there any players that you love God. and appreciate but hate to actually watch? It's a, it's a curious question. I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit nervous for Chris Decker to ever write a review. I, I, hope, I, hope, <laughs> I, hope, it's, I hope he's kind. Um, I, so my honest answer is no. I don't really have anybody I, I hate watching. I have mm. players that I fear watching and, like, and impose fear as soon as I see them step on the pitch. I think the closest thing I have are like mild frustrations. Like going to Manchester United for a moment, the two that kind of jumped out to my head were I adore Ji Sung Park. I think he is the most like one of the most committed players to that to that team and that club in a very long time. I think his mm-hmm. work rate was amazing. It's why he starts the Champions League final because Sir Alex Ferguson loves his his energy, his work. He's up and down the field. But he was reliably bad with that first touch. And I, that was a thing of like if you knew a ball went to him at a certain amount of pace, it was going to get miscontrolled. It was going to pop up and might go out of bounds. And that was always a like frustrating thing of, oh, the counter's up. Oh, no, he, he had a, a touch four yards in front of him, and now they've gotten the ball back. That was maybe a thing that was frustrating. Another one that I would say in that line, again, it's the, it didn't make me like dislike the player, but I remember sort of 
like growing up watching Paul Paul Scholes get away with murdering people in his tackles and just thinking <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's just a thing that happens. And there was a like a switch flipped in a Manchester derby once uh, when he went in for a challenge. And it was like it was a red mist moment. Like he didn't need to do it. I think it was like 2011, maybe. And he just booted somebody. And I remember being like, "Ah, oh, yeah, it's Paul Scholes. He's going to get a yellow card." And then he got a red card. And just being sort of like dumbfounded. And it was this weird usual sus- suspects like zoom in of like, "Oh, those were all terrible tackles." And from that point on, it really was every time I see him go in, it would just be like, "Oh no, it's going to happen again." And that was kind of a cringy thing. Anytime my shoulders would go up uh, without me meaning them to, that was sort of what I would. I would say was my indicator of of not enjoying a moment. So those are my two semi answers for Chris. Do you have any? Yeah. By the way, Paul Scholes' tackles weren't a bug; they were a feature. I'll just say that. Yeah, uh, true. Out the gate, and I'll apologise <laughs> for uh, butchering another name there, Romeo's name, which I think I butchered in the question. I'm having a tough time with names today. Let's hey. see how we keep going. It's um, a t- it's a tough time, Ryan. It's fine. <laughs> it's a tough time. I've got Don't a lawsuit on my hands, Taylor. Come on, <laughs> give me some credit. Um, so. I would I would say hate is a strong word. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll tone it down to players I'm pretty disappointed by. Yeah, uh, and a couple of names uh, sprang to mind: Timo Werner, who I've uh, listened yep. to the weekend review, who have noted my sort of disapproval of him and mainly his decision making. Uh, I always I, I tend to see when he's on the ball, I, I, he, you know, he's always got an easier option to make, and I think there's a bit, maybe a bit too much hype around him. Yes, I think he's a good player, but I, I just doubt his decision making sometimes, and he frustrates me. Uh, the other player uh, who sprung to mind was Bernard at Everton, uh, mainly because he makes me disappointed in myself because at the 2014 World Cup, I was hyping the Bernard train so Uh-oh. hard. Uh-oh. I believed he was the next big thing, and he was going to be incredible. Didn't quite work out for Bernard. And yet he's another great player, but I suppose in a Werner-esque way, he's another player who makes it hard for himself. He doesn't always take the direct scoring option or the direct passing option. He hogs the ball a bit too much. His decision-making suffers sometimes as well. And maybe he just makes me uh, look at my own shortcomings for predicting who's going to be a great player or not. So was Bernard's that, on the list there too. Was that 2014 uh, you said? Yeah, I think so. Is that right? Uh, we can bo- we can bond over that because I think one of when we did specific predictions, one of my more like infamous terrible ones was that Fred was going to win the the Golden Boot at the 2014 World Cup, and I think he Ooh. went on to score zero goals and looked like a laughing stock. So uh, we can bond over our mutual frustration with certain players at the 2014 World Cup. But it sounds like you had uh, another one in there, Ryan. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'll, I'll add there, by the way. I was in Brazil for the 2014 World Cup, and it was a pleasure hearing Fred and Hulk uh, being described by the commentators out there because it was Fredje and Hulke. It was really fun to hear them say that. And also, when I watched the England game with Portuguese commentary, and they say Glen Johnson for Glen Johnson. That was wonderful. Uh, that's a little side. But it's I'll fancy. say, I, I, uh, I, I've said that those are players that disappoint me. I actually have thought of a group, a whole entire team of players who I hate to watch. I mean, I they, can guess. They wear a particular shirt, Taylor, uh-huh. which has an M and a K yep. and a D and an O and an N and an S on it. That's yeah. what I'll say. That's, I hate uh, to watch them. That's, man, I, I think like that. that is a distinct difference between like me as an American liking Manchester United and watching the Premier League and you growing up in England. Like, I... For me to say, like, oh, I hate Liverpool. Like, I dislike certain aspects of Liverpool. Jamie Carragher is not always my favorite. But I wouldn't (laughs) go, like, that far as to, like, I detest them. Because I think, to some extent, you have to be, like, steeped in that. You have to experience what it's like to lose a game and have Liverpool fans, like... Just like just mocking your whole city uh, and not growing up in that. Like I don't I can't really share that like level of dislike, but I'm kind yeah. of fascinated by it. And, and I do appreciate it. I like that anybody who signs for them is instantly bad in your opinion. 
Yeah, but I, I also it's not quite what Chris Decker was asking because he asked for players I appreciate on the pitch but hate. Ah, I, don't, I, I don't appreciate any of them either. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've given as best of answers as we can because, again, I don't think there's anybody I particularly hate. If anything, I try to figure out, like, I try to take a page from Daryl basically and figure out, like, okay, but there's got to be something to this player that's good. So this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Maybe we'll talk about some more exciting players in just a moment, but first let's talk about today's sponsor, LinkedIn, who ask the important question, are your small businesses' needs evolving? Despite the current uncertainty, having the right people on your team is like feeling the warmth of being wrapped up in a blanket. I would say it's just the warmth of knowing that uh, things are getting done and they're getting done well, which is definitely, I guess, as comforting as a blanket, sometimes more so in my opinion. Yeah, who doesn't like the comfort of a of a LinkedIn jobs blanket? That's what I ask you. <laughs> that LinkedIn definitely exists and is swag somewhere. You could definitely find one of those. Oh, if there is, I want one. That sounds delightful. LinkedIn, <laughs> of course, is an active community of professionals with more than 706 million members worldwide. None of those communities were 705 million members. Pfft. No, no, they're not as good as LinkedIn. <laughs> Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Uh, you can manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar, you know it, LinkedIn.com. Head there on your interwebs. And that functions, uh, that, the functions there are streamlined onto one simple screen. And I, as a user of LinkedIn, uh, I can vouch for that. It's a very easy site to use um, uh, as a job poster and as a job seeker. If you go to LinkedIn.com slash jobs, you can do this uh, deal listener and take a look it is a very easy way of finding yourself a new career opportunity it's organized by location and suited to your linkedin profile i really appreciate you doing all the heavy lifting there ryan because i am still stuck on what would the linkedin blanket look like and i think it would be a snuggie right because you've got to have your arms freedom or a slanket or whatever you've got to have the arms free to move you know you're working you got to keep things going but you want the warmth and the comfort so that's that's what i'm saying i'm sure that's as important as talking about everything else that linkedin does (laughs) uh which we can do right now by saying that when your business is ready to make that next hire find the right person with linkedin jobs ryan is there an incentive of any kind for people if they did want to go that route well, it's funny you ask, because there is. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off if you go to linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. That they do. Thank you to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode and to Ryan for dealing with my LinkedIn blanket conundrum. Thank you to Patrick Delaney for our next question. Is the Holland or is Holland Mbappe the next generation's Messi Ronaldo? Uh, Patrick seems to think it is. Uh, he asks if we agree. Yes. I think is the answer. Um, they're the, I, I would say they are certainly the best candidates to do so. It's not quite a direct comparison yeah. because Messi's not the straight up number nine that the other that Holland and Mbappe would would claim to be. Uh, maybe a better comparison with with the other Ronaldo as well, who was more of a pure number nine. But of course, Kylian Mbappe does very much base his game on Cristiano Ronaldo. We've seen the pictures of him at Clairefontaine with the Ronaldo posters on his wall. I, 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 I was thinking about this question for a long time, Taylor, yep. because, you know, well, if you look at, for example, the top six goal scorers of all time at the age of 21, Kylian Mbappe is in second place with 103 goals. Uh, Neymar is second with 80. And, you know, he's, he, he was 
he's well ahead of Messi and Ronaldo at that point. And my theory, my feeling originally was that this won't be quite the same equidistant relationship that Messi yeah. and Ronaldo have because I felt that Haaland is going to pull away more. Interesting. But I was thinking, maybe he won't. Maybe he won't. I, I get the feeling they're both the kind of player who will probably end up at Real Madrid at some point. They're both <laughs> yeah. similar ages. They could very much have a direct competition. But something, maybe I'm just on the hype train too hard for Erling Haaland at the moment. But something tells me he's going to pull away and be something a bit more special. And one other thing I'd add here, Taylor, is that the Messi-Ronaldo rivalry i think that's once in a generation once in a lifetime and for us to have a second one arriving straight on the doorstep after them that feels too fortunate for us (laughs) that that is my answer basically because i i share your yes question mark but my answer is no but i really 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 love this question my answer is no for the reasons you mentioned i think messi and ronaldo are certainly in the conversation for best players of all time or certainly like in the top five and we got to experience them both in their prime like so often it's like a person is just at the tail end maybe they've got a few more years and then the youngster is coming through and then we get that debate of like oh wouldn't it have been cool if we got to see them who Mm -hmm. and like and here we have a sort of back and forth we know how many times they've won the ballon d'or and i just i don't know if we are very fortunate to have gotten to experience that, I don't know if we're going to get something quite that level again. But the reason why I love this question, or at least not anytime soon, but the reason I love this question is because I've never put these two players together, ever. Like, right. I've never thought of them in my head as like, oh, Mbappe Holland, that's the rivalry. And so when I first read this, I was like, no, definitely not. And then I think to your point, the more you think about it, the more it's like elite Almost generational goal scorers who do very different things, but also a lot of very good things, are playing for very good teams. One has already had a lot of success, including winning a World Cup. One plays for Norway, so has not yet had that achievement. Uh, but still, like you can see the ways in which they're going to develop, and I think they are both going to be sort of back and forth of who's having the better career. We'll probably see them like swap awards at different points. I think, though, you're right that they both feel like players who could or will end up at Real Madrid, and I think that would be almost a problem. Like, I think anytime you have, like, two world-class players on the same team, the de- there's always going to be a debate about who's going to be better or which one of them is more important, and to some extent, it diminishes a little bit. I think I honestly think if you'd had Messi and Ronaldo on the same team, I don't think it works, or it certainly doesn't work very well immediately, but I also think it, it like, both of them lose a little bit of luster because... They're just kind of playing together all the time. Uh, maybe Messi is a little bit better. Like it's, a, I think it's an easier comparison and diminishes both as a result, whereas having them on opposite teams in these opposite competitions and sort of outdoing one another, not that that's their goal, but just that they're kind of both having these opportunities to raise their game and raise their teams and elevate those performances. Mm. It's, it suddenly is a much more interesting sort of relationship that I'm, I'm now excited to track and see how wrong we are or how right we are. What would be really fun, Taylor, is say that Erling Holland. What if he ends up at Real Madrid? And then what if Kylian Mbappe, Kylian Mbappe yeah. ends up at a AFC Barcelona 2021, which is the startup <laughs> club, which is going to come after Barcelona go bust in the next few weeks? <laughs> Wouldn't that be really interesting to see them come head to head? Oh, man. Oh, the vague shots fired. Uh, it would. It would. And that, that does feel like a thing that maybe would have happened sooner if we hadn't had the pandemic and we hadn't had the financial issues at Barcelona. I, I could see Kylian Mbappe at one and then Erling Haaland at the other. Uh, and yeah, we... we we would have gotten a, a treat there. I do have a feeling they're going to end up in the same league at some point, that league mm. probably being the Premier League, but you never know. We, we shall see. Maybe that's just my, my Premier League-centric bias. But anything else you want to talk about with Haaland and Mbappe being the next generation's Messi-Ronaldo? 
Can I ask you a question? Sure. I kind of answered it. I think, uh, well, I think that Harlan might be the, the star who rises the highest out of these two. In five to seven years or whatever, who do you think is going to be who make a bigger imprint? Who do you think is going to have more of those golden balls? Man, that is tough and a hilarious question at the same time. Uh, <laughs> but my, my gut answer is Kylian Mbappe because yeah. we've already seen him sort of like reach these heights that are incredible for a person of his age. He's gotten the big move. I feel like kind of justified that with PSG and the way he's performed for them. The World Cup, obviously. And and his game is obviously very much built on speed, but it's built on so many other things and his technical precision and in his excellent finishing. Like, I, I think maybe it's the recency bias, though, of like, mm. I do find myself going to Holland with his size and just his overall frame. Like, if he takes it as seriously, like his footballing career and his health as, say, Zlatan, like we've seen how far Zlatan has been able to go because – with a person of that size and that skill set, you don't have to have that elite speed that, say, Kylian Mbappe has. So I think there's that, there is that physicality that probably factors into it a little bit for me. I won't be surprised yeah. if Mbappe has more success more consistently over the next five years, but I also won't be surprised if Holland closes that gap a little bit as their careers progress. I think that's completely fair, and I think recency bias has affected my answer, as has the fact that I watch Borussia Dortmund a lot more than I watch PSG. Yeah. Yeah, same and here. I would suggest that Mbappe would push on a bit more elsewhere. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, and probably then gets that more attention because I think with PSG there is that idea of like, yeah, that's great. You're scoring goals for PSG. So does everybody when they go there. So yeah, <laughs> jump jumping to Barcelona or Real Madrid or I don't know, Bayern Munich or somebody in the Premier League. Yeah, I think it probably does then change the estimation of him a little bit, and that will probably be the case for Erling Holland as well. Yeah. All right. Everyone, everyone scores who goes there. Eric Chupomoting just came into my mind for no particular reason. <laughs> While he's in your mind, do you want to ask the next question or answer it? It would be my pleasure to right. ask it to you, Taylor. Grace Fisher mm. asks, inspired by the recent Dortmund-Hoffenheim game where Dortmund not very successfully attempted to play without Haaland, using uh, Julian Brandt as a force nine for 60 minutes, can we talk a bit more in depth about how a force nine system sure. is supposed to work? Who actually scores in that system? And maybe some examples of it as a successful tactic. And uh, Grace asks, uh, adds, do managers ever choose it deliberately as opposed to being forced into it by injury? I've got thoughts, Taylor. You go first. Uh, I would start with the, the last part first to say that, yeah, I mean, that's how it, that's how it originates is as, as, yep. as a deliberate tactic beginning in... I think Tifo did a very good breakdown of this, but like starting in the 1930s, kind of perfected by Hungary in the 1950s, and then moving on from there, it's definitely been a deliberate tactic. I think where it gets confusing in the modern era is I could give you five different players and half of people you asked would say, oh yeah, it's a false nine. And the other half would be like, oh no, it's a, it's a nuanced thing. It's a defensive forward. It's a deep lying midfielder striker. Like there's so many nuances. And I think that nuance comes from the implementation of a false nine. And I would say, mm. It's a little bit like if you think about the kind of classic number nines, big target striker, Andy Carroll, uh, when he's first breaking through, is sort of like you're, you're playing the ball long, you know he's going to challenge forward in the box, your number nine leads that line, holds the ball up, is the big physical presence. If you don't have as many of those, which is where it developed in Hungary, is like post-war, there's not a bunch of giant Hungarians around, so you have to kind of change your style to adjust to what you do have. It becomes about how do you utilize technical ability and speed to, to deal with the fact that maybe you don't have that size, and that's where the false nine comes in. It's essentially a... Um, 
a deep lying striker is the easiest way to explain it, who, be, yeah. who tries to find space between the lines. So rather than being that big number nine who stands up top and tries to stretch things, they're dropping in between the midfield and the defense. The idea being that if you have maybe a 15 yard gap between the defensive line, midfield line, the forward goes and occupies that. In this case, the false nine goes and occupies that. It makes the defense make a choice. Is the center back going to go with him and then that opens up space in the ranks or does he stay and then that player now has time and space on the ball? The idea Mm. is that if they don't go, then that player can turn and go goal themselves or try to combine with other people around them. And then if they do track that, that false nine, then there's space for other attackers to run into. So the answer of who scores the goals, it's still that false nine on occasion. It can just also be more players who are making interior runs and attacking runs. That's, that's my abbreviated answer, but I have now talked for a while, Ryan, so I'll turn it to you. Well, I'll start by thanking you for bringing up uh, post-war Hungarian soccer, Jonathan Wilson. That was very kind of you. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I think the best description I've seen of a false nine, or the best phrase for it, is a midfield striker. Yeah, you, that, you yeah, kind of hinted exactly. at that as well. It's the number nine, as you say, but sitting deeper and going, as you say, between the lines to try and draw those centre-backs out. And I would say, to, to answer Grace's question, it's not necessarily the scoring role, mm-hmm. but it's someone who has the freedom to do so. So Francesco Totti under Spalletti, for example, yep. not expected to be the scorer, but has license to very much poke it in as and when he wants. And, and to interject there, if Grace wants, that's the I think the Roma 2006-2007 team is a really right. good example of that. Mid, mid, mid-2000s Roma, precisely. And obviously, it's been made famous by Pep Guardiola at Barcelona. Also, Vincente, uh, Vicente de Bosque with Spain, using, uh, among others, Cesc Fabregas in that role. Eden Nazar last, or two seasons ago, whenever it was, with Sarri. Um, he used it at Chelsea. That is an instance which Grace might be hinting at where they may have done it because they were forced into it by injury yeah. or by a lack of squad depth with Eden Nazar going up top. But to answer the question, as you say, Taylor, no, it's very much been chosen deliberately in many ways and to a certain extent by Jurgen Klopp when yep. you look at the way um, Roberto Firmino is used. He is uh, sits a little deeper, and he allows Salah and Mane to thrive when it's that front three. And um, you could even say Messi does it, to, or did do it to a certain extent, with Neymar and Suarez in that front three as well. And we've seen how he's receded deeper and deeper as his career has gone on, Lionel Messi, that is. But Roberto Firmino, I think, is an excellent modern example of yep. it. Someone who gets criticised for not getting enough goals, but he very much has licence to do so, but it's because he's expected to have that slightly deeper uh, midfield striker role and to support Salah and Firmino. I I agree with you entirely, and I would say I go so far with it as that's become one of my indicators of lazy analysis if I hear commentators or if I read a story and they're talking about like Firmino's lack of goals and surely Jurgen Klopp must be wondering if there's better goal scoring options out there it's like okay then either you're deliberately misconstruing what they're trying to do or you're not (laughs) watching Liverpool because he could not score the entire season and I think Jurgen Klopp will start him as long as he is continuing to do what he does which is yeah drop in exploit space try to create overloads move around to cause problems and create chances for himself but also create chances for other people I think he's a great example of it but then you'll get this idea of well he's not truly a false nine he's more of an attacking or he's like a midfield striker he's more of a defensive forward like the nuances are there because I think it's it's more ubiquitous now and has sort of evolved into different shapes but roughly speaking yeah I think that's a great like example to look for when you're looking for what a false nine does Taylor do you like a false nine system I like I think I like the way it's been interpreted like again that the tifo video i was uh i was mentioning i used andy carroll earlier as an example because 
looking at the way he's had to change his game, you can see the influence of a false nine that now even Andy Carroll like knows that si- sometimes he has to drop into space to try to pick up the ball to try to like, keep attacks moving. And I think to answer your question, I like it when it is that hybrid role. I think for Roberto Firmino makes Liverpool even more fun to watch for me, which, mm. again, is not my favorite thing in the world to watch Liverpool be incredible at a time when Manchester <laughs> United are not, but they are. And, and I think he is really, really fun. I really enjoy him. I love, uh, you know, the, the goal-scoring forwards who get 25 a season, and that is also captivating. See Mbappe and Erling Haaland. But I think the variety and the intelligence required of a false nine or like a hybrid false nine, yeah, I think I enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough assessment. I think I would agree with you there in saying I like it when it's used within, say, Jurgen Klopp's system with, with the with the game pressing, with the, with the pushing high up the field, with the supporting mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the the other front too. I didn't love it so much when it was sort of Del Bosque doing it with Fabregas and you know the Spanish art project of just passing into submission. So I think it can be used in different contexts and. I think the 90s 4-4-2 part of Ryan always will love having a big man up top as well. So that that, that kind of yeah. weighs into my decision as well. But I think my final thing I would say, I'm glad that we're on the same page about that. Like the final thing I would say to Grace is just that I think sometimes – I'm going to try to thread this needle. But I think sometimes like people get overly focused on – what this person are they a false nine are they a support striker are they a target man what have you and i think like that to some extent is like done almost as like as, a, as an exclusionary thing in my mind or it's sort of like oh well they're clearly a false nine did you not know what that was and like i i would say it's important to learn the history of the game and to understand the basic concepts but if somebody is lecturing you about that's not a true false nine you can listen to them if you want, but to me, it's like, yeah, but you know what I'm saying. They're doing this yeah. thing, and I think if you're looking for it, it's a forward dropping in, finding space, not just trying to stretch that back line, not just trying to kind of sit there and look for the long ball, but trying to create. And again, as I said, I think a lot of forwards are doing that these days. So I think that also probably explains the confusion is it's, in my mind, less of a unique circumstance thing and more of a genuine tactic that a lot of teams can employ when they need to. I will add, Taylor, if someone is lecturing you about whether it's a true false nine or not, get better friends. (laughs) Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, if you need to get better workout apparel, then uh, today's sponsor can help you there. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Viore. We've talked about Viore before. We will continue to do so because we're both pretty excited about their products. Uh, Ryan and I... I think have a similar aesthetic, I'm going to guess, of Mm. a kind of work-from-home casual. You're wearing pants that could be in the office, but maybe you're wearing them with tennis shoes as opposed to nice dress shoes. That's where I am. Is that where you are, roughly, Ryan? That is 100% what I live in, Taylor. The kind of look that you could get away with in the gym. And, you know, going to the Trader Joe's, as I've mentioned before, which Uh, I seem to reference, I seem to advertise Trader Joe's as much as I do Fiori in their reads, and I apologize for that. But the point is, I like comfortable clothing. It feels like a good comparison. I'm good with that. 
Good, good, good. Well, I, I like I like to uh, uh, give the impression that I have an active lifestyle, even when I don't necessarily. <laughs> uh, I like versatile and comfortable clothing, yeah. and I like stuff that looks good. And I think Viore ticks all of the boxes. I'm looking through the website now, and there's some really nice pieces on here, uh, which I'm going to get involved with very shortly. It's good stuff. You're going to get involved with. I like that. But yeah, I think the versatility, uh, comfort is obviously a big thing, but I do like the idea of pants that you can go for a jog in but then yeah go go live your life in and not feel like oh i look like i rolled out of bed and then went and ran errands you look a little bit more put together and i do appreciate that viore making that happen Mm -hmm. uh the idea again is to build active wear that doesn't look like active wear and provide you with a solid investment in both your clothing and your happiness for our listeners yes can i jump in just before you get to the uh, the alluring offer yes sir. where do you stand or where do you sit on shorts i'm a shorts guy in the i will wear shorts 12 months of the year, unless I absolutely can't get away with it. Hmm. I think I'm, I'm, I'm roughly that, like in the house. I think I, but I tend to go soccer shorts with pockets, which is basically, uh, Viore provides more, like, fashionable looks than that. So maybe that's the way to go. Cause you're right. I think I'll go, I'll go soccer shorts with pockets to hold the phone while I have the AirPods in. So yeah. if I can find some Viore like shorts that do the same thing, then yeah, I'll go year round. I will not wear them out outdoors. I'm not taking it to that level of like, I don't even need, I don't even need pants. I'm too tough. That's not me. I don't want to do <laughs> well, that. I'm when, guessing that's not I- you either. I asked a question, because, no, very much so. But when I look on a, an athletic apparel website, mm-hmm. the first thing I do is go for the shorts because I think that's where I kind of build ah. my outfit from. And uh, Viore have got some really nice ones. They've got some five-inch ones. I like to show off the money makers, those pins tailor occasionally. The men's core short, I've got my eye on that one as well. I like a line short as well. Plenty of options there on uh, vioreclothing.com. Since you've asked me a question, we're just going to keep this going. I hope people are enjoying our Viore ad read that is also Ryan and I interviewing <laughs> each other. Uh, <laughs> I was watching – I'm wondering how you go about selecting your shorts, and then I'll give you the reason for asking uh, while you ponder it. Uh, I was watching a Hot Ones interview with Shia LaBeouf, which might be my favorite of all of those interviews. I knew nothing about that guy, and he is captivating and wild all at the same time. It's a very Daniel yep. Day-Lewis vibe from him. You never know if he's going to snap. Uh, but he talks about how he selects his clothing by shape, and it needs to be a specific shape, a, a specific silhouette, which was – different oh. than how I, I select clothing. What do you look for if you're online shopping for shorts? Well, uh, if I'm selecting a T-shirt, I like it to have a vague T-shape. I suppose that's the shape I would go for. But for <laughs> shorts, I, I, as I say, I quite like a short short. I like a soccer short that's short as well. I've said short way too many times. But I mainly, as I say, when I'm looking for the athletic kind of short, it's the lining that's important. And I used to be a big sort of basketball short, long shorts guy. And as I say, got to celebrate those pins occasionally, Tay-Tay. You do, and you shouldn't be short with yourself, Ryan, because when you're looking for shorts, you don't want to cut that search short. Uh, for our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get, get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at vioreclothing.com slash TSS. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash TSS. Ryan, what will they receive for putting in that code? Oh, well, let me tell you, Taylor, because this is a fantastic <laughs> offer. Not only will you receive 20% off your uh-huh. first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. order over $75 and free returns. I believe that's all 50 states, including Alaska and Hawaii, the freak states. Go to vioreclothing.com slash TSS for that offer. Listeners from Alaska and Hawaii, we look forward to your letters. Viore, thank you for sponsoring <laughs> today's episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, 
day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Two more questions to go, Ryan. I will ask you the Simpsons next one. a Simpsons reference, Taylor. Come on. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, Joey Jedlowski, was it really? Which episode? Uh, when they're trying, I think it's when Homer's trying to get free stuff, oh. possibly when he's crusted the clown, and they're trying yeah. to get airline tickets. You can go anywhere in the world you want to, except Alaska and Hawaii, the freak states. Oh yes, I just remember. Yes, that the the way the delivery of that, which is said like I think by Hank Azaria, very much under his breath, that resonated yeah. all of a sudden. Oh, that's good stuff, Ryan. Thanks for that. All right, thank you to Ryan for that. Thank you to Joey Jedlowski for our next question. Still laughing. What other leagues use the line drawing tool for offside that the Premier League uses? Uh, lots of them, if not all of them, I suppose, yep. is the direct answer for this one. Um, as far as my anecdotal knowledge goes, Tete, and I think you're right, La Liga certainly, uh, Liga and B- the Bundesliga all mm-hmm. use the kind of lo- line drawing tool that uh, the Premier League uses, but they use maybe a slightly different kind of graphic. Yep. And maybe, just maybe... They use it less often. Is that fair? This is that's once again. This is this so, is my anecdotal yeah. observation on this. I agree with you, and, and my answer will be as well to some extent because I think leagues have been like a little bit coy on the specifics of how they're using it, which is a thing that they have learned. I was reading from like spokespeople for different leagues from different seasons mm-hmm. about how they've used it, how it's evolved, and to some extent, I think they want to be vague in areas so that you can't really nail them down for like, this is what you said you were doing. Why aren't you doing it that way? Uh, Because I think in a couple different places, it has changed from we're looking at the millimeter precision thing or we're like reviewing everything because like, oh, it could have been that. That could have been an incident. I think that was a consistent complaint that there was too much VAR usage. And I Mm. think what some leagues have 
evolve towards is a an a, genuinely like is it obvious and if you're watching a replay that's why i think sometimes you'll see a, an official go over look at the monitor and then just immediately walk away like they only needed one look and it's because in those leagues like spain i think is doing a lot of this i think seria as well the idea is if it if it's fundamentally th- that you missed something then you can go and look at it but if you like saw some contact and they're like hey there's a little bit more than you might have thought they can go look at it really quickly and if it does seem like there was a lot more than they might have seen then they'll reverse it but if not they're just going to let things go yeah. i think that has maybe been a bit more loosely interpreted in some leagues than in others. I think the Premier League is still probably one of the most strict when it comes to some of the way VAR is utilized, certainly with offsides. Yeah, I think you're quite right there. And uh, is, it, is it just me, Taylor, or have other leagues, like say Serie A, for example, ironed out their VAR issues yeah. a little quicker than the Premier League has? It seems a bit more of an albatross to the Premier League. It seems like it's a bit more of a song and dance in the Premier League. Whereas we saw, say, in Serie A, uh, that first season it came in, there were lots of extended pauses. You get six or seven minute breaks while they're trying to figure out what was going on. But it seems like they've kind of pushed on with it and they're, they're, they're a bit quicker. And I certainly say in La Liga, they appear to be quicker with handling it and they they, yeah. they sort of lean on it less often than the Premier League. Bring it I think to, it, trust the Premier League to make a, make a too much of a kerfuffle out of it, huh? Indeed. And I'm not sure I said La Liga, but La Liga is specifically the one where basically if it's not immediately clear, they move on very mm-hmm. fast. That's why they don't want those replays in slow motion. I think to your point about how long some of these teams have been doing it, or leagues have been doing it, rather, like I, I think I just in my head I'd created this idea that it's tr- it's uh, like – it's trialed, I think, at the 2018 World Cup, or it's maybe trialed before that, and then it's like used in the 2018 World Cup, and then after that, it becomes ubiquitous everywhere. I think like the Women's World Cup, it was also utilized. Um, and, but going back and looking, it's like, no, like Serie A brought it in in 2017. So did yeah. the Bundesliga. And so I think some leagues have had more time and have been more willing to adapt their usage, whereas I do think the Premier League has doubled down to some extent and has been more like rigid in its interpretation and then rigid in its defense of that interpretation as opposed to seeing it as what it's meant to be I think which is an evolution of the game how do you evolve it how do you get things so that it feels right but you're not missing major things uh in Serie A for example I think they had a massive reduction in red cards because players suddenly were aware that they couldn't get away with stuff and I think that's a really good usage yeah I do for the first time I think I've always been a a subscriber to the idea that like it's the offside rule that needs to change, and as long as it's just yep. the players offside, then yeah, even if it's a millimeter, they're offside. I am coming around to the idea of the is it clear and obvious? And if you watch that replay, is it obvious that player was offside or not? Without having to draw a line, because at a certain point, this is the thing I think you've talking about a lot, Ryan, or talked about a lot, is that it's like it becomes subjective itself as to like is the ball leaving in this half second or this half second? Mm-hmm. Is the player? It whenever you kind of freeze frame it, it can look very different. Yeah, and I think you're quite right. And this is something we talked about in the weekend review, uh, referring to the Tottenham. Brighton game in that we spend five minutes looking at whether a toenail is offside Mm. and not enough time whether someone when someone's shirt is pulled or they're grappled to the box Aaron Maguire style so it's it's interesting the way the technology is being used I think it will refine as the seasons go on and we have seen it be refined in the Premier League for example who were very adamant about not having referees look at screens for example last season now they're very much going over and looking at the screens even if like um, Dunder Mifflin's Michael Scott in Mm. the Tottenham game looked at the screen and said nah I'm right. (laughs) Which, 
Oh, that does feel very, very – anytime you're like comparing someone's behavior to Michael Scott, it's always a, a, a big old red flag for sure. <laughs> uh, anything else we should talk about when it comes to VAR or line drawing? Um, I was uh, – just to reiterate the fact that I really, really wanted VAR to be brought in. I wrote yep. several articles about how I thought it was the natural progression of the game. No, I'm not so sure. I don't think it's made anything any better necessarily. Uh, like I'm not saying this hasn't been the case – but I guess I, I feel like I don't know enough to say if they have done this, but I, I just sort of wish that there was more of an approach of, look, we're, this is not going to be perfect right away. And I think people had this idea of you're putting in replay, replay is supposed to tell us definitively one way or the other, and that's it. Like, And so I think we thought it was going to be a perfect system because there's replay, everything can be reviewed. And what we've learned is that a lot of soccer is like in the moment and can be a little bit subjective and can be still open to interpretation even when you have a thousand replays. And I think maybe just saying, like, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to make this work. And then I think that maybe helps people have more of a patience with it and more of a, like, okay, it's an evolving thing. Here's how we can suggest it evolve. Or here are ways in which I think it could be improved. But because I think, like, especially in the Premier League, it's been this sort of, like, look, this is what we're doing and this is how it is and that's how it is. Mm. Then I think invites more, like, this is stupid as opposed to, well, here's how it could be improved. And I think other leagues have done a better job of embracing the improving it structurally than just debating if it should structurally exist yeah let's focus on the improvement rather than the negative so i like yeah. to have a positive outlook on these things thank you joey jedlowski hopefully not a resident of alaska or hawaii <laughs> for that question should we move on to the final one Tate? let's do it let's do it i'm excited to hear your answer to it do you want to ask or do you want to answer first i shall ask you right. zach lippert's question thank you zach lippert for your question what has been the most important to u.s soccer transfer involving an American. What's the most important U.S. soccer transfer involving an American, Taylor? I have two, uh, and the, neither one of them is particularly like groundbreaking. The first one would be uh, Clint Dempsey moving to Fulham in December 2006 for an yep. then-MLS record $4 million. Uh, that has since been broken, I think, a number of different times. But just that a Premier League team were interested in this player, obviously there's already the like full America connections, but that he goes over there and then has the success he had to then justify that move to Tottenham. It, it felt like a sort of like a linear trajectory that made sense and that it started with Major League Soccer and then moved to the Premier League and then moved on from there. Like yeah. that, that to me was a, a very big transfer. The other one that was just a, a bigger transfer in terms of headlines and money would be Christian Pulisic moving to Chelsea uh, from Borussia Dortmund for what, 58 million pounds um and it stands out because at the time like we knew he was sort of emerging as a breakthrough player for Dortmund but then with the way the transfer happens he's he's still there he's on loan technically for that second half of the season he doesn't get as many minutes and it felt more uncertain it didn't feel like okay this player has been starting for this team now they're moving to this slightly larger team where they will then be a starter there was a little bit of uncertainty in my mind and instead it feels like he has come in and made himself a player that Frank Lampard enjoys and appreciates and has again I don't know if he's justified the price tag to Chelsea fans, but I don't see that as being a, a talking point. I don't mm. hear it being like money wasted, what a, what a letdown or anything like that. It just seems to be like, yeah, he's been good for us. And I think that's about what you want for a player who moved of his profile for the amount that he did. So those are my two answers. I do have one that did not happen, but is a sort of, or did happen, but is a little bit of a hypothetical. Uh, but I want to hear your actual concrete ones first. Okay, yeah, I'll start off with Alexi Lalas going to Padova. Ooh, Kidding. interesting. 
That wasn't, oh. no. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> I'll, let's I'll, talk about it. <laughs> I'll agree with you with the deuce. And uh, I'll say Brian McBride going yeah. to Fulham as well for similar reasons. Him going back and forth. And I think he went to, was it Wolfsburg before he went? And then he sort of went back and forth. Uh, I think that was very important. And he had a very big impact, particularly on Fulham, and is still very well regarded there. And my other two are very similar in line with you. I think uh, Des going to Barcelona, I think, is a big indicator of where we're at with US soccer at the moment. And the fact that yeah. he's rolled straight into that Barcelona team is very impressive and, uh, you know, it's, it's got a very bright future there. But the number one answer is one you've already made there. I think it has to be Christian Pulisic, not just because he's gone to, you know, one of the best teams in Europe in Chelsea and arguably is their best attacking player. I think you, when he's fit, I think you can argue that he's their best attacking mm-hmm. player. And it, that's a big if on him being fit because he's yep. obviously struggled with that a little bit. But I think there's not many Chelsea fans who would disagree that he's really, really, really good when he plays. But also it's the timing of that transfer. I think it's come at the right time. It's come at a moment when certainly the national teams are a bit of a lull and it's picked up and he's going to be the talisman for this new national team, which suddenly has that's an awful point. lot of prospect prospects who are playing outside of MLS, who are playing within Europe, and he's going to be representing that. So it feels like the timing of that and and the way he's been elevated in European soccer is going to be really, really important for the confidence of the U.S. national team and for the confidence of U.S. soccer fans in general, I'd say. Man, that is a great point. I didn't think about the sort of low point in U.S. soccer and the role that he's played in in keeping people optimistic and Mm. somewhat happy about the national team. So, yeah, I think so. we can agree Christian Pulisic then number one. Mm-hmm. I think all right my uh my one that like like was a uh, I wish had gone a certain way was weirdly uh Tab Ramos moving to Rao Batiste and I will explain myself oh. uh, he's playing for uh Figueres I believe it was in like the second division in Spain he moves to Rao Batiste in the 1993-1994 season and is this instrumental performer he gets some looks from La Liga clubs but with Rao Batiste is able to get promotion to La Liga so we're going to have an American playing in the top flight in Spain and then that's uh, basically promoted at the end of the 93-94 season would have played the 94-95 season for them but has the skull fracture uh, playing for the United States in that World Cup and misses the entirety of that next season in La Liga and ends up not making an appearance for them. And La Liga is one of those leagues up until Serginho Dest, we had like Shaq Moore there, I think, and is still there in the second or third division. But it's not been a league that many Americans have gone. And it's crazy to think about in my mind that if he had gone there and been this key performer for a La Liga team, do you have more Spanish teams starting to look at the United States at an earlier time period? And does that Hmm. become a landing point for a lot of people? I feel like there's an argument that yes, because there was value there. It was sort of a nascent league that was starting to develop. And I think Spanish teams could have brought in more talent, but it goes the way it goes. So that's one of my like could have been's but wasn't. And with that said, the answer is Christian Pulisic. Yeah, and also, I just it's just occurred to me, it might be remiss not to mention Claudio Reyna as well, yeah, just for someone who fair. came over and spent majority of his career in Europe. And just the impact he had, you know, when I was back in the UK and you saw him playing week in, week out in uh, Sunderland and City and, and even in Scotland, it was just like, it was a sign that American <laughs> soccer players were being taken seriously. He was, you know, cap- you called him Captain America. And it was... It was a sign of, you know, this is the kind of caliber of player that U.S. soccer can produce. And it kind of put U.S. soccer on the map, if it doesn't sound like I'm looking down the nose too much to say that at that point. No, I don't think it does. It okay. also, like, we're we're going to go into, like, sliding doors multiverse territory. But, like, there's also an argument of, you know, 
Giorena is then born in Europe, <laughs> like, like gets a European passport. Yeah. I mean, I think he would have had one through his dad anyway. But like, do, if Claudio Reyna doesn't go abroad and doesn't have that success, is does Giorena have the career he has? Are those connections there for Claudio to I think help like have his son have those connections and have some of those meetings he gets? It's a weird sliding doors moment of yeah, if Claudio Reyna doesn't do that, do we have Giorena now? I don't know. I don't know, Ryan. It's an odd, it's an odd thing. It's an odd thing. I think this is a sliding doors remake in in the making here. No, no, uh, Gwyneth on the uh, subway car. It's uh, it's Geo getting born in Sunderland. <laughs> I do think the rule on the Total Soccer Show, Ryan, historically with listener question shows, is that once we start getting into the weird, weird, is when it's a good time to end the show. I think me bringing up multiverse ideas of where Geo Reyna would have been born is as good a time as any to uh, to end this one. Uh, but Ryan, thank you so much for helping me make sense and answer some of these listener questions, which I think were excellent. They're always really fun. And like with the Mbappe Holland one, makes me think about things differently or consider things in a different way. I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. I did indeed. I shall restart my campaign for posthumous knighthoods for all the 66 players. In the meantime, <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Tay-Tay. Never a choice.